1: including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton.
2: Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of Getting In a College Coach Conversation. I'm Sally Ganga, and I'll be your host today. Beth Heaton, the regular host, will return next week. Now on to today for our second segment, we'll be talking with Jessica Brathwaite, postdoctoral research associate at Columbia Teachers College Community College Research Center about the challenges faced by students entering community colleges. Then we'll be speaking with Lori Peltier, um, a college coach educator in, in the area of finance about using a 529 plan to pay for college. But first, are you considering going Greek when you attend college? Or maybe, like me, you never thought it would be a good fit for you to join a fraternity or sorority. Either way, you'll find my discussion about Greek life during the first segment with Karen Spencer, a college coach, educator, and former member of a sorority, interesting. Welcome, Karen.
3: Welcome Sally. Thank you. A former member of Sorority. It sounded like it was like a big thing there the way you introduced that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought I thought I should uh, make it clear that we were going to have a point counterpoint here. Me, that's someone who didn't right. want no, to that's join. That's funny. I love it. Okay, so speaking of that, um, you know, people can have very strong negative or positive opinions of Greek life, and sometimes there's not a lot in between. We'll unpack that shortly, but what I'd like to do is actually start with your own experience. You know, why did you decide to join a sorority, and what did you see as the benefits um, once you were there?
3: Sure. Sure. I think, um, I, you know, my brother had been in a fraternity, my sister was not, and my, um, mother had wanted to be and didn't get into one. So I had kind of come to undergrad, and my father was in one and had a great experience. So I came in with kind of a very mixed view of, in my own family, of, of, you know, people who had done it and loved it, people who had adamantly not wanted to do it, and somebody who had wanted to do it and didn't get into one. Um, And so I kind of had all these different experiences coming at me. I think I always knew it appealed to me, the idea appealed to me, although um, when visiting colleges, I do remember actually um, visiting one school and deciding I didn't want to go there for a handful of reasons, but one of which was that I think 85% of the undergraduate population was Greek. And as much as I thought I was probably going to end up Greek, I remember thinking I didn't want to have to be Greek, and that was kind of a big deal for me. So when I went to uh, my alma mater, um, where it was about 40% Greek, give or take, on any given year of, of the population, you know, it was definitely a presence on campus, it was a presence that was felt, uh, but it was still not a majority of the campus, and um, so I didn't feel pressure by any means to to have to do it, uh, but again, I was already, it was kind of appealing to me as it was, um, without having, you know, any, any outside influences, and so I decided to do it, you know, I went to a, a small liberal arts college in a very small town, and um, so it wasn't and in terms of a social um, opportunity, frankly, I'll be honest. That was that was the best one there was. <laughs> if you wanted, <laughs> you know, opportunities to do things, and not just in a social context. Although definitely that was that as well. And I make no qualms about saying that was an appealing option for me. Um, but other kinds of organized activities in terms of, um, there was organized community service, there was um, organized intramurals, there were organized, um, you know, formals and other events, you know, as well. And so that, to me, was appealing to me. I I like that idea of kind of having a place to go, a place to call home, you know, when you're kind of away from home. So that's, I think, initially um, what attracted me, although I would say, in my case, it turned out to be even more beneficial than kind of what I was originally hoping for.
2: Okay, well, that's great. What um, so? What were the what were the sort of additional benefits? What was the piece that surprised you about it?
3: Um, you know, I think the leadership potential that it, it, it gave to me, um, or the leadership opportunities that it, it presented, um, some of which I don't think I even appreciated at the time, um, but actually, I would say much of which beca- uh, led me to my future job, even here. Um, I, I really learned that I wanted to work in higher ed. My um, senior year of college, I became vice president of inner sorority council, um, which, at least in my alma mater, really meant that I was in charge of the rush process. And um, that is a complicated process. Um, it can be sometimes a highly charged process and misunderstood process. Um, but I was actually nominated by quite a few different members of different sororities and encouraged to do this. Um, and it was just a really unbelievable experience. It was probably the most beneficial and, and frankly, some of the best learning I did in college, if I'm going to be honest. And I'm sure there's academics out there, you know, having, you know, a mild stroke right now listening to me say that. But, um, you know, I really <laughs> did. I think I learned more doing that than I probably did the other four years combined in terms of kind of what makes me tick and, and, and liking to be a leader and what makes a good leader. Um, As Inter-Sorority Council President, I also had to do a lot of judicial stuff. So if um, someone was written up for something, we had to address that, um, which sometimes involved my own sorority. It can involve somebody else. Um, So you had to kind of really take yourself out of it and be able to look objectively at something. Um, And running a process, even, you know, as the Vice President, I had to call girls who wanted to rush but whose GPA wasn't high enough and tell them that they couldn't rush. Mm -hmm. Um, And that wasn't the the dean's job. That was actually my job. And so just opportunities like that to do some things that were sometimes really fun, sometimes really tough, um, but in order to lead an entire group, uh, an entire organization, um, I think was some of the best learning I did in college.
2: Okay. It's so interesting. I mean, all of those opportunities sound amazing. And actually, I'm sort of chuckling because another colleague of mine got into college admissions and then college counseling For the exact same reason because she coordinated Rush for her sorority so that's kind of making me chuckle but um, a lot of people when they talk about sororities talk about sisterhood and I guess that's sort of what you were referring to with kind of with the home away from home comment was that a strong part of it too?
3: Absolutely. You know, I, I think I might have mentioned this to you even, you know, and it's sisterhood in, in all kinds of ways. Um, you know, you've always got someone to go to lunch with or dinner with. You've got somebody, you kind of got a built-in intramural team. You want to go play, you know, sign up for the soccer intramurals and you need 10 people, you could probably find 10 real quick, um, you know, and, and that kind of thing. You also had sisterhood in terms of a support system. Um, I, as, as I said, I mentioned to you before this, you know, my boyfriend and I broke up, uh, I think it was sophomore year, and, you know, being devastated as you can be when you're a teen and you're right from breaking up with you. Mm-hmm. Right, you know, right. I remember in five minutes from, like, word traveled, and I had, like, 20, sorority sisters in my room, you know, comforting me. They were me Doritos. They're threatening to, you know, kick his butt or, you know, do whatever. <laughs> you know, just I felt very loved, very supported very quickly. And, um, and of course, you know, to what, you know, a counterpoint would be, that is not that that couldn't have existed within that, that framework. Of course it could have. Um, but I just think it was kind of an instantly built-in thing. Um, and, and I, you know, again, that's kind of a silly example, but in some regards, it's kind of reflective of the whole, right? You always have somebody there for you, um, or at least I did in my experience, um, Mm -hmm. um, really, really had that sisterhood.
2: And I actually don't think that's a silly example because all kinds of things can derail students when they're in college and being dumped by a boyfriend or girlfriend I think is probably one of the top reasons <laughs> that yeah. a student it, can get derailed. Is,
3: you know, that's funny that you say that because my girlfriend had a similar experience who's also my roommate in my sorority and we were also responsible for making her go to class. Like, she would have just checked out for a week. And we're like, Jane, you have to go to class. Like, you know, you know, step, you take it in a shower, you know, go, we're all making you go to class. This is ridiculous. You got to pull it together. Um, mm-hmm. So there, there is that kind of tough love as well.
2: Mm-hmm. All right. Great. So, um, all right. So obviously, um, you're not the only, you know, wonderful ethical person that I know who's belonged to a sorority or a fraternity. Um, so obviously, they can provide some great options for college life. I was wondering. Um, I mean, I imagine that fraternities actually would offer some great benefits as well. Do you think that their benefits are similar to the benefits that sororities offer?
3: I think. I think they are actually. I think this is a sweeping generalization of, of gentlemen here. You know, I think maybe boys as teenagers may not be maybe sometimes as quick. To take up those opportunities, but um, I would say actually, said boyfriend who broke up with me, or well, you know, at the time, um, went on to become um, a national rep for his fraternity, and he would say the same thing. It was probably one of the most transformative and and you know best experiences of his life was you know or in college was was being in a fraternity and learning leadership and leading to his future um, his future jobs actually as well, which had nothing to do with higher ed. Um, but I do think I think there are For lack of a better word, sometimes boys may be less likely to, um, or encouraged perhaps by their peers to take up those options. Um, But I think there's even some safety measures in there to kind of make sure you do do these. Like uh, most fraternities and sororities have community service requirements, right? So even if you don't feel like going to highway cleanup, you have to go. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. you know, that even if you don't feel motivated to do some of these things, there are, like I said, that's part of the membership is that you got to do it.
2: Right. Well, and if you didn't belong to the fraternity, maybe you wouldn't do anything at all. So right, I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So so clearly lots of great options. Um but you know, then I'm just going to address some of the more controversial issues that that um you know, have made national news. For example, I read an article about um a sorority, you know, I read an article about a sorority, um a couple of sororities, I think at University of Alabama that hadn't had an African American member for something like 30 years. They'd sort of had one, you know, way back when, when they were forced to integrate, and then literally hadn't had one since then. Um, You also hear about fraternities with abusive hazing practices. So I was just wondering, do you think these issues are common? Um, Do you think maybe Greek life varies from school to school? I mean, what are your thoughts on some of the sort of really negative stuff that we hear uh, in the
3: news? I think it definitely varies from school to school, and I think you could find, you know, as varied as your student body is from one school to another, it is your Greek system is from one school to another. I have told many people that while my undergraduate Greek experience was phenomenal, where I went to graduate school, which was a larger state school in the South, um, would I have been Greek there? Uh, I don't know if I would have been. And and this is, again, coming from someone who had a phenomenal undergraduate experience in the Greek system, but it was very different um, at, my, at my graduate school. You know, it was, it was a little bit more, um, um, you know, everybody got dressed up. And you know, now, that was also a reflection of simply being in the South, not just necessarily being Greek. But it, it was a very different system in many regards. And so I think that's my biggest piece of advice to students is to say, yes. You know, first of all, I think these things do happen. Obviously, they happen. They're in the news. Um, and I think um, it's, it's, it irks me to great, because for something that could be such a good experience, it's run so poorly at some institutions, or even by individual organizations within the larger Greek system. Um, I always say, you know, you never want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, um, just because one fraternity is doing it poorly in a college campus doesn't mean they're all doing it poorly. Um, so, you know, I always be, be careful about kind of sweeping generalizations like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I do think, do I think there's hazing at fraternities? Yes, of course I do. I think, I mean, we know there's that. Is it at every fraternity? No. Um, and so that's why you really have to do your research because again every school is different and every you know individual sorority or fraternity at a school is different. Um, even at my small little liberal arts college of you know 2,800 students, um, there were eight sororities there with very different personalities. Um, if you know there was and and reputations to each one of them and which. They probably earned to some degree, um, but you know there were there were places where nobody was going to be drinking on a weekend at all, and then there was going to be other ones that were going to be drinking every weekend, right? But everything and everything in between. Um, so even within one college, the different the different organizations were very different. Um, so I always say if, if this is something you're thinking about, do your research.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I mean, just talking about, you know, I I'll admit it that back when I was in high school, I was very anti-fraternity and sorority, and you know. F- you know, some for some really, some reasons that weren't that fair. I mean, one of them was it as a high school student, I'd sneak into fraternity parties at the local large state school. And, um, you know, I saw some really unpleasant levels of inebriation. So I thought, well, I don't want to be part of this. This looks gross. I don't want to go to a school that has right. this. Of course, then I go off to a college with no Greek system. And I saw plenty of parties like that without any without <laughs> any fraternities at all. So, um, you know, on, on the other hand... You know, while there I think I was judging based on limited and situational exposure, I also didn't want to join a sorority because I felt like they are organizations that are sort of, that purposefully choose students who are like them and then try to kind of enforce that togetherness through a kind of conformity. So maybe that's me just being too judgmental. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Feel free to challenge me on that.
3: Well, you know, and I think, I think there are probably places where that's true, Um, You know, I think there are, again, it's not, you know, everybody says that's why I always say that in my experience, right? In my experience, that was not true at all. In fact, there were a lot of people in my sorority who I think I never would have met had they not been in my sorority because we wouldn't have crossed paths. We just we either didn't have a lot in common or we weren't in the same major. We hung out at different places. Like, we weren't, we would not have crossed paths. And so in that regard, I think actually my experience was that I met more people than I probably would have because of, of being Greek than perhaps I might have had I not been. Um, I'm sure there are sororities and fraternities where that is more readily enforced. Um, I think it also, you know, I think there can even be geographic differences, you know, to your point. I think, you know, and many people have said this when I was pulling my colleagues about their own personal experiences, you know, Greek systems in the South, for example, are are a big deal. Um, And again, that's a sweeping generalization, but by and large, it's fairly true. Large state institutions in the South, sororities and fraternities are a large deal. Um, as you get further north, um, there are places for sure where they're a big deal, but then you're going to find more and more places where they either don't exist at all or they're a smaller percentage of the population. And so, um, I, you know, I, I think, of course, is there a sorority or a fraternity out there where you're pressured to conform to certain standards? I'm sure there are. Um, in my experience and with the people I've talked to and been friended, that has not been their experience. So, you know, I think... My, my kind of take-home for anybody listening to this who's thinking about doing this is, you know, if you really just not appeal to you, then don't do it. Uh, if it appeals to you, then you should, you know, rush and try it. And if you're not sure, you know, that's kind of what the rush process is for, is to see not only, you know, I think people think, oh, well, I've got to go pick a sorority fraternity, but the rush process is also to decide if you even like this idea, right? And, and you may find you do, you may find you don't, but that's what rush is for, and that's the beautiful part of rush. You don't like it? You don't ever have to do this. Um, you like it, you can go forward and do it. Um, And so that would be my best piece of kind of take-home advice for a a student who's kind of on the fence is to try it and see if you like it.
2: So that's an important note. I mean, I always thought of Rush as something that you did if you were definitely planning on joining and you were just picking which one. But the point that you're making is Rush can help you decide if you even want to join a Greek organization at all.
3: Exactly. My husband did that. My br- husband rushed with his best friend, who's still his best friend. They both tried it out and both decided and went through the whole thing, too, and then decided, you know what, this is nice but this is not really our scene and we feel like we can you know, have just as good of experience on our undergrad or you know, whatever we want to do without being part of this organization, and they didn't do it, and they, but they would still tell you they were happy they did it because it was very clarifying for them
1: hmm.
2: So we only have one minute left. But um, one thing that I wanted to just follow up on is, you mentioned that there was a college that you looked at that had an 85% Greek population. And you decided against that towards a college that had about 40%. And that seems like really sage advice to me. Look for colleges where you have a choice. Can you kind of follow up on that?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think if, if I had been there, would that have been fine? It probably would have been. I just didn't like the idea of having to do that. Um, I think if you're 100% sure on the idea and that doesn't bother you, then, then it wouldn't bother you. It's like picking a college that only has engineering. You better be sure you want to be an engineer or we're going <laughs> to have a problem.
1: Um, mm-hmm.
3: So I think, you know, looking at your options and seeing if, you know, the vibe of this place and the percentage of the Greek system is in line with what it is you'd like your undergraduate experience to look like. Um, and if not, um, for e- and either way, maybe there's no Greek system and you want one or there's too much of a Greek system and you're not sure about it, you know, that's why you have to visit colleges and, and really kind of assess the extracurricular situation to see if it matches with what you're hoping for in your mm-hmm. four years there.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right, well, thanks so much, Karen. I really appreciate this discussion today. Thanks, Allie. All right, everyone, we're going to take a short break. But when we get back, we'll be talking to Jessica Brathwaite, Community College Research Center Associate, about challenges faced by students entering community college.
0: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in.
4: Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors, but we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
0: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
1: Welcome back everyone.
2: As I mentioned before our break for this segment, we'll be talking with Jessica Braithwaite of Columbia Teachers College. Welcome, Jessica.
4: Hi Sally, thank you for
2: having me. Oh, thank you for being on here. So um, you study students who attend community colleges. Uh, Obviously, I think most people agree with me on this. I think community colleges fill an incredibly important role in our society of really helping anybody go to college. It helps students get second chances. It just serves all kinds of purposes. But what are some of the problems that students might encounter who do choose to attend a community college? So
4: Community colleges... Community college students are going to face all the same problems as four-year college students in terms of, you know, mastering the curriculum and getting to graduation. But community college students are more likely to be low-income, first-generation, non-traditional age, and minority. And these subgroups tend to be less well-prepared than their peers. Um, Community colleges accept all students regardless of skill level. So the population is going to be a little bit different at a community college.
2: Okay. So, and so what, given that they are less well-prepared, um, what are some of the things that community colleges do to to handle that?
4: So, along with um, being less well-prepared, community colleges are, community college students are more likely to place into developmental courses, um, which are courses that are non-credit bearing, which are designed to get you ready for college-level classes. So, Colleges are trying a lot of community colleges now are struggling to figure out how to either help students avoid these classes or get them through these classes more quickly.
2: Okay, so how common is it? like do you do you have a sense of what percentage or roughly what you know, yeah, roughly what percentage of students who go to community college might be placed into at least one developmental or remedial course or more?
4: More than two thirds of community college students take one or more remedial course remedial courses in their six, um, within their time at the community college. So that's a lot. You know, sixty eight percent is a lot of this. Most of the students are going through these courses.
2: Okay. All right. So that's it's clear that that's much more common than four year colleges because community colleges are open enrollment, as you mentioned. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Okay. So how do community colleges decide who is placed into remedial courses?
4: Most most two-year institutions use assessment tests to determine how students get in, and that can be whether students... Uh, most community colleges use assessment tests to determine whether students are college-ready. That can be the ACCUPLACER or the COMPASS, some of these national tests that we've heard of. Um, the COMPASS is being phased out, though, um, So schools are moving towards multiple measures of placement. So rather than one single exam that determines whether you're college ready, now they're using a combination of your SAT score or ACT score, your GPA, um, region scores if you're in New York, things like that to give a more holistic sense of a student's skill level. Um, And multiple measures and tests are the most common ways.
2: Okay. So it sounds like in the past – it just Almost everybody had to take a placement test, um, but now they'll look at your transcript as well holistically, or am I misunderstanding
4: that? No, that's correct in some states. Not all states are implementing multiple measures at this point. Most states, I think, at this point are still using placement exams as the most common form of placement, but a lot of these tests have been found to be inaccurate or not really predictive of student's actual skill level. So there's a shift happening right now towards these multiple measures of placement. And yes, transcripts are part of that.
2: Okay. So that's kind of interesting too, because that's more, it sort of more closely mirrors what you see at a four year college, you know, at a certain level of selectivity. So that's, that's kind of an interesting movement. Um, Okay. So what is the downside? I mean, You know, on the face of it, I mean, obviously it's not fair if a student is placed into a remedial course because of a test that's flawed. But, you know, Mm -hmm. in general, what's the downside of of so many students having to take these remedial courses? I mean, on the face of it, it seems like they help students.
4: So they do help students get to their college-level courses. However, when students get to college, they're all pumped, thinking, you know, like, I'm a college student and they may get placed into multiple semesters of developmental coursework. These courses cost full, like they cost like a regular credit-bearing course, and they, students can get discouraged along this pathway. You know, you've been in college now for two semesters perhaps, and you still don't have any credits accrued, and you've spent a ton of money, and it's more likely that students placed into developmental education are going to drop out. There's, after each of those courses that they have to take, we've found in our research that students tend to drop out along that pathway. So these sequences have a lot of exit points. Okay. And, um, I, that's I, one of the downsides, that students just become discouraged while they're taking these courses that don't, you know, have any real value for them. Okay.
2: Well, and I imagine that, that you know, paying money for something that ideally they would have completed in high school for free really does have to be pretty discouraging.
4: Yeah, Yeah. and if you have financial aid, there are limits on it. So you, you know, assuming you pass, it could take up to a year. If you fail some of these courses, you can be two years in or more and still be in developmental courses, and then you're finishing your financial aid before you even get to college-level courses. That can Mm -hmm. happen.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. So clearly, this is a really serious issue, and probably one that not a lot of people are aware of. Um, I certainly wasn't aware of, 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 you know, what a big deal it was until I talked to you. So, what are some solutions? You know, what are colleges doing to help students graduate from community college? So there's a
4: there's few things. A few things that they can do. Um, I'll start with what they've already been doing. There, a lot of colleges offer resources and prep for these tests, so they might welcome the students to the college and say, hey, you're going to have to take this test. You can brush up on the material. Here's a packet. Um, In terms of reforms that they're trying to implement, there's a lot of changes to course structure, so they may condense the amount of developmental courses required. They could redesign it so that you only take what you need, meaning, you know, say you Understand everything except for fractions. They can put you into a fractions course as opposed to making you take an entire sequence of math that you may not need. Um, there's also mainstreaming, which is also called the corec model, corequisite model, meaning, say that you just fail the English exam and you you score high, but you just don't score high enough for college English. They might put you into a college English course. With an additional supplementary course, like a lab or a recitation as we know it, so that you are getting that college credit, but you also get a little extra support since you didn't quite make it into college english mm-hmm. um, so and go ahead. No, no, no.
2: Well, I was just saying it was just interesting to me because that sounds pretty similar to the kind of supports that a student with a learning disability might have in high school. You know, like just a little extra, you know, maybe like a preparation period or something like that. But then otherwise they can really do the same coursework as everyone else.
4: Right, right. It it is similar. You know, you're just slightly underprepared. And we just want to give you that bump to get you over the over the class.
2: Right, and then once you've gotten that bump, you can just, you don't you won't need the extra assistance anymore, ideally.
4: Right, right. Right. You know, the pass rates of those students from developmental education are similar to those who go directly to college-level classes. Like, once they're in the class, they tend to do equally well.
2: Okay, so that's really important. So, So the students who, even if they start out in these remedial courses once they get into the regular coursework, they do tend to do well? Or are you saying that even when they're placed directly into, when they're mainstreamed immediately, they tend to be able to keep up?
4: Or is it both? Um, Students who go through their developmental sequence and end up in college have similar pass rates to the students who went directly to the college-level courses. And those mainstream students have similar outcomes. Mm
2: Mm-hmm.
4: Okay. So there's, all right. there's, there's three different pathways. I'm not sure if I made that clear. You can, in these new type of models, you can either go through a course sequence or you can be mainstreamed, which means you take the course with the add-on, or you can just go straight to college. But once they're all in the same class, all of those students do similarly well.
2: Okay. All right. Now I get it. Thank you. Oh, <laughs> Thank you for explaining that, that again. <laughs> Yeah, and when we were talking earlier in preparation for this call, you mentioned that different states were trying different things. What are mm-hmm. What are some good examples of, of successes that different states have had?
4: Um, I can speak from some of the work that we're doing here, um, and I can't necessarily speak about success, but I can tell you what people are doing and what's sure. popular. Um, I know in North Carolina they're implementing the multiple measures um, they are also using a customized diagnostic exam. In Virginia, they're doing a modularized structure. So they, they identified the issue that, you know, students are staying in these classes and getting stuck. So they condensed the course structure such that even if you place into the lowest level of math and English skills, meaning like you have, you know, the lowest proficiency, you should be able to complete all your classes in one year. So at most you will get out of your developmental sequence in one year and be on to your college level courses. Um, there's also in New York there's a similar, uh, there's a program called CUNY Start. So students that do not uh, test and are not proficient for college get to delay their enrollment and take a one semester intensive program that is designed to prepare them for the exam.
2: Okay, so it's kind of like continuing in high school for an extra semester almost?
4: Yeah, you know, you don't, you're not paying tuition, you, it's $75, and students are in in class for hours, I've sat through these classes, um, and it's really intensive, and, and it's supposed to give you that foundation that enables you to go on to college, and they have, you know, a uh, Pretty good success rate in terms of the students that graduate from that program are actually getting onto their college level classes. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of different ways you can either address the problem, you know, before they get to developmental classes and skip developmental classes through a program like CUNY Start, or you can change the developmental course structure in a way that helps them finish faster.
2: Mm-hmm. All right, great. So. It's really good to hear that people are being innovative in addressing this issue. Um, What can like assuming though you're in a state that doesn't have any of these special programs, what can Mm -hmm. high school students do to avoid being placed in remedial courses? You know, what should they be doing in high school um, to start out with, and then when they go to community college? It's um, in
4: high school. I think it's an awareness issue. Students have to be made aware that the, the curriculum that they're encountering, the pre-algebra, the algebra, this is not the last time you're going to see this. It's going to be important when you get to college to determine what courses you're placed into, and there are real consequences of not passing that test. It's a shame to take an algebra class in high school, get a decent grade pass, and then get to college and have to pay for the same material. And our research here at CCRC shows that it's not always that they don't know the work. A lot of students just don't prepare for the test. They don't take it seriously. They don't know what the costs. They don't know what the consequences are. So it's a, it's about awareness, I think, letting students know this this material is important and it's going to be important for your college outcomes.
2: Mhm. So ideally, and parents. Like, oh, sorry. Go ahead.
4: I was going to say. Um, It's also, it's not just the students that have to, it's not just the high school students that have to do something to avoid this. It's also the high school. You have to make sure, the high schools need to be in conversation with the state systems and the colleges to make sure that the curriculum that they're offering matches that of the college and that their proficiency exams and and the way that they deem students college ready actually matches how the college will measure college readiness. Mm-hmm. there needs mm-hmm. to be alignment on that front also.
2: Right. Well, and it seems like, I mean, I, I it's interesting because I I work as a college counselor for students who, you know, are getting into selective colleges. And even mm-hmm. they don't seem to always be aware that it's not just about taking a class to get into college, but those classes are needed to prepare them for the classes they'll take once they're in college. I mean, I'm like, you need physics if you're going to be pre-med, you need physics in high school because that will prepare you for when you take physics in college. And they're like, oh. <laughs> you know, right,
4: right. That, that type of awareness is critical. And it, it sounds simple, but it really is important. Like I know myself in high school, I wanted to get out early. I skipped physics. I said, ah, you know, if it's not required right. for my degree, let's skip it. But I didn't know at the time, like, well, I might need this down the line. I think that having those conversations is really important because – I don't think most high schoolers are thinking four or five years down the line. Right, right, exactly.
2: Yeah. And and that desire to get out early is a common one that I run into too. They're like, Yeah, but I can work and I'm like, Yeah, but your primary job right now is to be a student. So Right, um, don't
4: don't pay for it at the college level at, you know, thousands of dollars per credit. Do it now right. for free.
2: Yeah, yeah. I had a I had a discussion actually with um with a father the other day where I told him that exact thing. I said if your daughter gets out early now you're just going to be paying for her to learn the same material once she gets to college and he was like that's good to know (laughs) i said so that money she earns isn't really going to be an earning it's actually going to be a loss given that she's working for minimum wage so absolutely yeah yeah yeah. so who are the students then oh sorry go ahead No, no
4: no 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 go ahead
2: Okay, so we, we have about um, one minute left, but just quickly, who are some of the students who are successful in transferring to a four-year college? It sounds like they have they have really taken their work in high school seriously, but also made sure to prepare for these placement tests. Um, anything else?
4: Um, the students that are successful for transferring, we don't know a whole lot. We've just done some work on transfer. Um on transfers, We don't know a whole lot about what type of student is most successful, but what we do know is that low-income students are less likely, or they're having a harder time transferring. But what's, it's not necessarily about the student. It's also about where they transfer. We see that students that transfer to highly selective institutions are more likely to graduate, but that's a very small population of students. Mm-hmm. What we do see also is that students who transfer to four-year public institutions are more likely to graduate compared to those who transfer to four-year for-profit, I mean, yeah, four-year for-profit colleges. So it's also like thinking about if, if you have a chance when you get out of, when you're at the community college, if you can choose where you want to transfer, your best bet would be to apply for a highly selective college to aim high because your chances of graduation are higher at that institution,
2: mm-hmm. I think that's great advice, and I think that's that's advice that statistically a lot of students don't you know it seems like they don't want to apply to a college that they don't know anyone is gone who's, if they don't know anyone who's gone there already, which is really understandable, but then that means that there's a community of people that essentially aren't applying to these highly selective
4: schools um, yeah, and they, they may have been able to get in there's the whole undermatching phenomenon now like there's a lot of students who could get into top tier colleges but don't apply for whatever reason but it's it's well known that these highly selective colleges get students out they have the highest graduation rates and granted they start with a more skilled population but they get them out so if you have your pick aim high
2: right right aim high you can always have a safety in mind but aim high as well right yeah right yeah all right listen thank you so much Jessica this has been great just a new perspective on things I didn't know that much about so I really appreciate it thanks so
4: much Lisa I mean sorry Sally. that's
2: that's okay all right everyone we're going to take a short break but when we get back Lori Peltier will be talking about how to use a 529 plan to pay for college
0: stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast all the time the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts voiceamerica.com if you're a parent of a high school student you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions about the growing number of applicants the shrinking number of spots about how even valedictorians are being turned away for families of hopeful college students it's impossible not to worry Make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Streaming live, the leader in internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
1: listening to Getting In A College Coach Conversation To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today please call in to 1-866-472-5788 That's 1-866-472-5788 Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com Now back to the show Welcome back everyone In this segment
2: Lori Peltier She informed me I've been mispronouncing it Lori Peltier will be discussing how to use your 529 to pay for college. Welcome, Lori. Hi, Sally. Happy to be here. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. Um, All right, so let's just dive right in because we're talking today about using a 529 to pay for college. Um, So why is a 529 plan a preferred way to pay for college? What makes it a really strong option for families? Well, families really like the
5: 529 plans because they grow tax-free year after year as the children are growing, and when you withdraw the money, if it's used for college-related expenses, your withdrawals are tax-free as well, so you never have to pay any taxes on the growth of the account. These plans are also pretty flexible, for the amount of money you can put in and when you can put the money in. Sometimes the 529 plans are owned by the parent or the grandparent or even the student themselves. They also don't have a big impact on the financial aid eligibility for the family, which is an added bonus.
2: Hmm. Okay. Great. Um, and that's that's the confusing part. I assumed that you know when I first heard of five two nine plans years ago. Don't worry, this has been corrected a while ago. I assumed that five two nine plans would be taxed like the rest of the parents' income, but that's not the case.
5: No, it's not. It actually has a favorable treatment for taxes and for financial aid.
2: Okay, all right. Very good for people to know. All right, so how does a parent make a withdrawal from a 529 plan, and then who gets the money?
5: To make a withdrawal from a 529 plan, the owner of the plan has to contact the plan manager. So every 529 plan has an investment firm that's managing it, such as Fidelity or Vanguard or T. Rowe Price, so they'll know who their plan manager is. And they will instruct the plan manager of how much money they need, when they need it, and who the money should be sent to. They have three options. They can send the money to the owner, usually the parent or the grandparent, or they can send the money to the student who's usually the beneficiary on the account, or they can direct the money uh, to the college itself that the student will attend. For tax purposes, sending the money to the college is the cleanest way to make the withdrawal to do an electronic funds transfer directly from the 529 plan to the college account. That way, if there's any question of, was this money spent for college for this child, it's clearly there that the money you know didn't touch anyone else's hands. It was, it was a clear withdrawal. I would plan for five business days for the transaction to be completed. So when a parent's looking at withdrawing this money, they should plan ahead um, knowing when the college bill is due and planning for about five business days to get the money.
2: Mm-hmm. All right, great. So what kinds of expenses can a 529 plan cover?
5: That's a good question. Um, 529 plans are considered a tax-free withdrawal if they've used for qualified expenses at an eligible institution. Qualified expenses include tuition, fees, room and board, even if off-campus, books and supplies if they are required by the college. These expenses have to be for the student who's named as the beneficiary on the plan. And I've even seen some creative things where families will purchase a condominium or an apartment near the college campus and have the child pay the parent rent with 529 plans, and that's considered an eligible expense. So most people think it's just tuition, but it can be room and board and uh, books and supplies if, if they're mandated by the school. And then make sure that the family keeps copies of the receipts for the related expenses and the withdrawals that go along in case the IRS ever comes back and says, hey, you know, why did you withdraw this $10,000? We don't see where you used it. So you'd want to match up your uh, expense receipts with your withdrawals and make sure that they're for the same tax year. So if you have a bill for tuition for 2016, you'd probably want to make your withdrawal during 2016 rather than 2017 so that it matches up with the tax year. And when I went through the list of expenses, notice I didn't mention transportation or student loans. So that's a question we get all the time. You know, can I buy a car if I'm going to commute to campus? Unfortunately, no. You can't use a 529 plan for transportation expenses, and you can't use it after the fact to pay off any student loans that you've borrowed. Those are not considered tax-free withdrawals. The other portion of the equation is that it has to be an eligible institution. Um, Eligible institutions are colleges or universities that are approved by the U.S. Department of uh, Education, So they're accredited, and most colleges in the U.S. are pretty much any education after high school. It could be trade or technical school, you know, hairdressing school, Um, it can be community college or state university. It can be for a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, even law school, medical school. And there are even colleges outside the U.S. that are eligible if a school accepts federal student loans from the U.S., it's an eligible school for a tax-free 529 plan withdrawal. So there's a lot of uses for this money.
2: Mm -hmm. I imagine they get some pretty creative submissions for the students who are looking at beauty salon school, for example. (laughs) Like then, you know, just getting your hair done, would that qualify? I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, maybe, hairspray, yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah, you know, the <laughs> scissors, those sorts of things. So, All right, um, so should students spread the money out, or should they use it all at once?
5: That's a popular question we get here at College Coach. Families have done a good job saving, and now it comes time to, do I leave it in there longer? Do I wait until sophomore year or senior year? Uh, should I use it all up at once in the first semester? Um mm-hmm. You know, it's it's a tough one. The answer really depends on what the family's plans are for paying a balance of the bill. If you have to borrow loans to pay the college bill, it is kind of crazy to leave the 529 plan money sitting there in the account. Most 529 plans don't earn a high rate of return when the student is college age. Most plans shift the funds into conservative, low-yielding accounts to remove the risk of losing money right at the time when you need to spend it. So so it's really not making a lot of money for you, so why would you borrow a loan that's accruing interest if you have that money sitting there? Another reason to use the money up front is that you don't know how long your child will be in college. You're hoping they're going to go to, you know, four-year bachelor's degree and graduate, but they may come home after the first semester and say, college isn't for them, and then you didn't use your 529 plan when you could have. With that said, it may be wise for some people... Um, to pay a portion of their tuition bill with cash or a loan so that they can qualify for an educational tax credit on their federal tax return. Some families, if their income falls below the cutoffs, will qualify for a tax credit when they pay tuition. If 100% of the tuition is paid for with their Tax Advantage 529 plan, they can't double dip and take that other tax credit as well. So it gets a little complicated. You might want to talk to a tax accountant and try to figure out, uh, make sure that you're not using 100% of your tuition paid with a 529 plan so that you can still qualify for the federal tax credit. Um, the maximum that you would have to pay in tuition to get the maximum credit is $4,000. So if you, you know, kept some of the 529 plan out of the mix and paid some of it out of pocket up to $4,000, you'd get the maximum tax credit if you qualified. If the 529 plan is owned by the grandparent or someone outside the immediate family and the student qualifies for financial aid, they might want to wait until junior or senior year of college to use their 529 funds because the payments towards your college bill from outside family members is considered untaxed income to the student and it can have a negative impact on your financial aid eligibility. So, you know, it it varies from family to family of when they should use their 529 plan money. Most people use a lot of it up front in the early years, um, but they might want to keep some of it out to qualify for the tax credit, and then it depends on who's owning the account because it really um, could impact the student's financial aid eligibility if it's coming from a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle.
2: Mm-hmm. So, and this, they they can wait until the junior-senior year because of the new prior-prior yes.
5: filing?
2: Is that what it's <laughs> You're called? You're becoming I'm... an
5: expert, Sally. Yes, I'm impressed. Yes. <laughs> it is because of the prior-prior year um, where the financial aid applications are looking back two years. So once you get to junior year, any um, transactions are not going to be looked at because they, they didn't happen in that time frame um so so it it has a benefit to the families by going two years back,
2: okay, well, I have interest. I have a nephew, I have no kids of my own, but I have mm-hmm. a nephew, and uh I want to help him out, you know, depending mm-hmm. on how much the family needs, so I've been paying close attention to how this <laughs> stuff works, uh, so uh, his All right, so for the last question, um, what if someone has money left over in their 529 plan and, you know, their kid's graduate with college, you know, he's done, uh, you know, if you're in that unbelievably fortunate position, like what what then? Right. It doesn't happen often. I
5: haven't met many families with money left over. Um, But if you are lucky to have money left over, you have a lot of options. You can leave the money in there indefinitely. There's no time frame for withdrawing it. It's not like it's going to phase out or have to be used by the time the beneficiary turns a certain age. So you can leave it in there indefinitely. And you can always change the beneficiary on the account to a younger sibling, to yourself or your spouse, a niece or nephew, or even a grandchild. So it might seem crazy, you know, you have an 18-year-old going to college and you're thinking about saving money for a grandchild that doesn't exist yet, but it is possible to hold on to the money uh, that long. You can also pull the money out at any time and use it for something else, you know, go on vacation or buy a car or buy a house or whatever. But if you pull the money out of the 529 plan and don't use it for college, you will be taxed on the earnings, regular income tax on the earnings, and also a 10% penalty on the earnings because you didn't use it as it was intended, kind of like pulling from your retirement early. Um, So there's a taxation and a penalty if you pulled the money out and used it for non-college-related. However, some families have money left over in their 529 plans because the student received a scholarship. And if that's the case... Uh, You can show proof of the scholarship and withdraw the amount of the scholarship. So let's say the student got a $20,000 scholarship. You have $20,000 left in your 529 plan because of that. You can pull that money out without any penalties. There's no 10% penalty on the earnings. You'd still have to pay taxes on the earnings portion of your withdrawal, but you wouldn't get hit with that 10% penalty.
2: Wow, that's quite generous. I, that, is a, that is definitely something new that I was not aware of. So, all right, well, I think that's all the time that we have. So, thank you so much, Lori. Oh, you're welcome. Happy to be here. Okay. All right. Thanks so much to Lori and all my guests today. Now I want to tell you about our guests for next week. Beth will be talking with the Associate Director of Admissions at Connecticut College to get an insider's view of their admission process. She'll also be answering different listener questions as well as discussing using retirement savings to pay for college. Finally, I want to remind you that if you that you do not have to listen to our shows live. Every show is accessible 24-7 on the Voice America website, and you can also download every show for free on iTunes. If you check out the archives, you'll find shows on the Coalition application, the new application that's come out that the Ivies are a member of, as well as other many other selective institutions. You'll also find shows on Study Abroad, Gap Years, and more. And if you like our show, please be sure to rate us on iTunes. It'll takes a moment of your time and is absolutely free last do not forget we are here every thursday at 4 p.m eastern time 1 p.m pacific time check us out
1: thank you for tuning in to getting in a college coach conversation hosted by elizabeth heaton